from New York, this is Democracy Now! We're in the midst of the greatest public health disaster of the 21st century. Uh, it started out with a drug like OxyContin, and it has morphed since then into kind of a hydra-headed beast. Citing an escalating national tragedy, a federal judge in Ohio issues a landmark ruling against U.S. pharmacy chains Walmart, CVS, and Walgreens to pay a combined $650 million in damages for their role in the opioid crisis. We'll speak with longtime reporter Barry Meyer, author of Painkiller, An Empire of Deceit and the Origin of America's Opioid Epidemic. Then, ahead of Tuesday's primary in Florida, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis' new Office of Election Crimes and Security makes its first arrest, almost all of them, people who were formerly incarcerated and mistakenly thought they were eligible to vote. The state of Florida uh, has charged and is in the process of arresting 20 individuals across the state for voter fraud. We'll go to Orlando to speak with Desmond Mead, president of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. This comes as a federal judge in Florida has blocked key portions of the state's new Stop Woke Act that restricts race-based discussions and analysis in workplaces and schools. We'll speak with Florida State University professor Diane Roberts in Tallahassee, whose new Washington Post op-ed is headlined, DeSantis aims to scare academics. Unfortunately, it's working. Then we'll talk to one of the hundreds of Google workers with the Alphabet Workers Union who've signed a petition demanding the company protect the location and browser history of people searching for information on abortion and block advertisements that misleadingly direct users to anti-abortion so-called pregnancy crisis centers. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. At least 21 people died in Somalia after militants stormed an upscale hotel in Mogadishu Friday, beginning a 30-hour siege. Somali officials say at least 117 people were wounded. Authorities accused members of the group al-Shabaab of attacking and seizing the hotel at 7 p.m. local time Friday. An intense battle for control of the hotel lasted until Saturday night. It was the first large attack in Mogadishu since Somalia's new president, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, took office in May. The attack in Somalia comes at a time when the country's on the brink of famine. The head of the World Food Program, David Beasley, visited Somalia last week, warning the humanitarian crisis is intensifying. Climate change is impacting the entire world, and where I stand here in the Horn of Africa is absolutely no different. We're now looking at 20 million people marching to starvation here in the Horn of Africa. In fact, where I stand in Somalia, 7 million people, and that's twice as many as it was just six months ago. Why? Conflict, extremist groups, coupled with the driest season that we have seen in decades. Four or five rainy seasons have just disappeared. 
In other climate news, monsoon rains have triggered flooding and mudslides across northern India in recent days, inundating hundreds of villages and leaving at least 50 people dead in neighboring Pakistan. Weekend flooding killed three dozen people, while heavy rains brought flash floods to eastern Afghanistan, destroying thousands of homes, killing at least 20 people in Sudan. Officials say flooding has destroyed over 14,000 homes, claimed 77 lives during this year's rainy season. Here in the United States, a new study finds the climate crisis has doubled the chance California could be hit by a mega-flood that would bring widespread, catastrophic flooding across virtually all of California's lowlands. Police in Pakistan have charged former Prime Minister Imran Khan under Pakistan's anti-terrorism laws. This comes just a day after Pakistani authorities banned television stations from broadcasting Khan's speeches live. The charges against him stem from a speech he gave on Saturday when he accused police officers of torturing one of his close aides who was jailed on sedition charges. Imran Khan was removed from power in April in what he described as a form of U.S.-backed regime change. His political party remains popular. In July, members of the PTI won 15 of 20 seats up for grabs in an election in Pakistan's most populous state. A prominent Russian journalist died in a car bombing outside Moscow Saturday. Daria Dugina is the daughter of the ultra-nationalist Russian philosopher Alexander Dugin, who's a close ally of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Many believe Alexander Dugin was the intended target of the attack. He and his daughter had been at a cultural festival prior to the blast, but they left in separate cars. Both Alexander Dugin and his daughter were vocal supporters of Putin's decision to invade Ukraine six months ago. The Ukrainian government's denied any involvement in the car bombing. In news from Ukraine, Russian President Vladimir Putin has expressed support for sending experts from the International Atomic Energy Agency to monitor the situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Putin made the comment in a call with French President Emmanuel Macron. In recent weeks, Russia and Ukraine have accused each other of attacking Zaporizhia, the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. Russia has controlled the plant since March, but Ukrainian workers continue to operate it. On Sunday, President Biden discussed the situation at Zaporizhia by phone with Macron, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. In a joint statement, the leaders called on the IAEA to visit the plant as soon as feasible and for military operations to be avoided near the plant. In more news from Ukraine, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres visited the port city of Odessa Friday. He called on world leaders to help bring Russian as well as Ukrainian food and fertilizer to the global market. Other parts that are also important and we have been defending relate to the unimpeded access to the global markets of Russian food and fertilizers, which are not subject to sanctions. It is important that all governments and the private sector cooperate to bring them to market. Without fertilizers in 2022, there may not be enough food in 2023. I'm deeply committed to those objectives, but it will only happen if all parties cooperate. And I'm here in Odessa to salute the work being done and to urge that those efforts continue.
Mexico's former attorney general has been arrested on charges related to the disappearance of the 43 students in Ayotzinapa eight years ago. Murillo Caram, who served as Mexico's attorney general from 2012 to 2015, was arrested Friday, a day after a truth commission formed by President Andrés Manuel López Obrador, said the students' disappearance was a, quote, crime of the state. Mexican authorities also issued over 80 other arrest warrants. Those facing charges include 20 military commanders and troops who were from battalions in the city of Iguala. Charges have also been filed against local officials, police officers and members of the drug cartel Guerreros Unidos. In news from the occupied territories, Israeli authorities summoned and briefly detained the head of the prominent Palestinian group which documents Israeli attacks on children. Khalid Kuzmar, the general director of the Defense for Children Palestine, was summoned on Sunday for interrogation by Shin Bet agents. Israeli forces also tried to summon the head of the Palestinian human rights group, al-Haq, but he refused to go in for questioning. This comes just three days after Israeli forces raided the offices of both groups and five other Palestinian rights groups. Israeli Israel had previously designed— designated six of the NGOs, including Defense for Children Palestine and al-Haq, to be terrorist organizations. To see our coverage of the raids, go to democracynow.org. Singapore's prime ministers announced plans to repeal a colonial-era law that criminalizes sex between men, but he voiced his continued opposition to same-sex marriage. Singapore's prime minister, Lee Hsien Leung, spoke Sunday at Singapore's annual National Day rally. For these reasons, the government will repeal Section 377A and decriminalize sex between men. I believe this is the right thing to do and something that most Singaporeans will now accept. Hence, even as we repeal 377A, we will uphold and safeguard the institution of marriage. Under the law, only marriages between one man and one woman are recognized in Singapore. A coalition of LGBTQ groups in Singapore said the repeal of the colonial-era law was a, quote, triumph of love over fear, but they expressed disappointment over the continued ban on same-sex marriage. Back in the United States, Louisiana state bond commissions withholding nearly $40 million in funding for flood control in New Orleans after the state's Republican attorney general objected to city officials' opposition to Louisiana's strict abortion ban. The funding is meant to pay for drainage pumps critical to protecting New Orleans from flooding and rising sea levels due to the climate crisis. Attorney General Jeff Landry successfully pushed commissioners to withhold the funds as punishment after New Orleans City Council passed a resolution asking law enforcement officers not to enforce Louisiana's near-total abortion ban, which does not include exemptions for rape or incest. This comes after a Baton Rouge resident, who was 10 weeks pregnant, was denied an abortion at a Louisiana hospital, even though an ultrasound showed her fetus was developing without a skull. The condition, known as a crania, does not appear on a list of accepted conditions for an abortion in Louisiana. 
A warning to our audience, our next story contains graphic footage and descriptions of police violence. In Arkansas, two Crawford County sheriff's deputies and a Mulberry City police officer have been suspended after they were caught on camera brutally beating a man as they pressed him face first into the pavement. Video posted to social media shows one officer holding the man down as two others repeatedly kick and punch him. At one point, one of the officers is seen slamming the man's face into the pavement. 27-year-old Randall Worcester was taken to a hospital with head injuries after his violent arrest where he refused treatment. The Arkansas State Police said Sunday it has launched an investigation. In labor news, nearly 2,000 dock workers at Britain's largest container port began an eight-day strike Sunday. It's the first strike at the port of Felixstowe in 30 years. Meanwhile, here in the United States, over 500 staffers at American University are set to begin a strike today as they demand wage and benefit increases. The workers are represented by SEIU Local 500. And the longtime anti-nuclear activist and Catholic priest Carl Cabot has died at the age of 88. In 1980, he took part in the first plowshares action when he, along with Fathers Dan and Phil Berrigan and others, broke into a General Electric missile plant in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. They hammered on missile nose cones, damaging them beyond repair, pouring their blood on the damaged parts. Carl Cabot would go on to spend over 17 years in prison for his anti-nuclear activism. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show with a landmark ruling by a federal judge in Ohio that orders U.S. pharmacy chains Walmart, CVS and Walgreens to pay a combined $650 million in damages related to the opioid epidemic. This is the first federal ruling against the pharmacy chains for their roles in the opioid crisis. Other cases have focused on opioid makers and wholesalers that distribute the addictive painkillers. The ruling follows a federal jury's verdict in November that found the pharmacy chain's sale of these drugs caused severe harm to communities and violated Ohio's public nuisance laws. In the lawsuit, Lake County and Trumbull County alleged the pharmacies, quote, abuse their position of special trust and responsibility, unquote, as dispensers of the drugs and, quote, fostered a black market for prescription opioids. In his ruling Wednesday, U.S. District Judge Dan Aaron Polster ordered the damages to be paid out over the next 15 years and said they're meant to address a small piece of a terrible and tenacious and escalating national tragedy, even if the court could wave a magic wand and forever remove any existing or future oversupply of legal prescription opioids and prevent all future diversion of legal prescription opioids into the illicit market. This conjuring would do nothing to reduce the nuisance that would continue to exist in Lake and Trumbull counties. That is the widespread prevalence of opioid use disorder and opioid addiction, he wrote. CVS and Walmart said they disagreed with the ruling. A Walgreens spokesperson, Fraser Engerman, told The New York Times, quote, We never manufactured or marketed opioids, nor did we distribute them to the pill mills and Internet pharmacies that fueled the crisis, they said. For more, we're joined by Barry Meyer. Long reported on this issue is the author of Pain Killer, An Empire of Deceit and the Origin of America's Opioid Epidemic. Netflix is adapting his book into a dramatic series. Barry Meyer, 
was the first journalist to shine a national spotlight on the abuse of OxyContin and won the Pulitzer Prize and two Polk Awards for his past New York Times reporting on the intersection of business, medicine and public health. Barry, welcome back to Democracy Now! First, respond to this precedent-setting settlement against the drugstore chains. Well, well, Amy, thank you very much for having me on once again. Good morning. Um, I think it's uh, extraordinary, and, and I think it's high time that all the players in this terrible chain of, you know, manufacture, prescribing, uh, dispensing, are held responsible uh, for their actions. I mean, I hear what these pharmacy chains are saying, that they bear no responsibility but they were happy to rake in all of the cash when their outlets were kind of recklessly dispensing these drugs, or at least that's what the decision of the jury was. And so now it's time to pay the piper and to use some of this money to repair some of the damage. So talk about the response um, of these companies. Um, Walmart releasing a statement, for example, reading in part, Instead of addressing uh, the real causes of the opioid crisis, like pill mill doctors, illegal drugs and regulators asleep at the switch, plaintiffs' lawyers wrongly claim that pharmacists must second-guess doctors in a way the law never intended and many federal and state health regulators say interferes with the doctor-patient relationship, Barry. Well, from the beginning, this has all been a huge finger-pointing exercise. So, you know, the manufacturers have said, we just make these drugs, doctors prescribe them. The doctors will say, well, we based our actions predicated on what the drug manufacturers told us. And besides, there was another person up the food chain, the pharmacies, who were supposed to catch these bad actors. The pharmacists will look back at the doctors and say, hey, wait a minute, those are the guys who are responsible or the, or the drug manufacturers are responsible because we don't write prescriptions. We just dispense prescriptions. And as this one spokesman noted, well, maybe we would have people coming down on us uh, if we didn't dispense these prescriptions. But I can tell you from my own experience, uh, when I traveled a lot reporting for the book and as well for articles for The New York Times, there were pharmacists who knew that doctors were operating pill mills, who saw the cars lined up outside these uh, facilities where people would go in and, and get scripts for OxyContin by paying a doctor 40 or $50. And when these people came to their pharmacies, they turned them away. They refused to uh, fill their prescriptions because they felt they were illicit prescriptions. And that is the dilemma that C uh, CVS, Walgreens, and, and the other uh, uh, pharmacies now face, and that is, did they exercise due diligence in determining whether this was a prescription that should be filled or should not be filled? Um, the chains refused to settle, Barry. Explain how the case went, the um, jury case in November, and why it took this long to um, get a sentencing, a result. Not a sentence. Well, they did settle in some cases, Amy. That's my understanding. There were some localities where they chains have settled these cases, but I believe this uh, the financial demands and the stakes uh, in the in, with these specific Ohio 
counties were high enough for the um, for the pharmacies to roll the dice. Now, bear in mind, there have been drug manufacturers who also have been sued under this public nuisance law, which is basically a law that says, you know, you as a manufacturer, a drugstore, whomever, uh, you've acted in a negligent way. And as a result of that, we as a taxpaying county, city, state, what have you, some sort of governmental organization have had to pay out money, right? The the easiest model to think about it uh, through is the lens of the litigation that was brought against the cigarette manufacturers, right? They sold products without disclosing their dangers. States had to pay all kinds of health-related costs, and they sued the manufacturers to reclaim the tax funds that were paid out. This is a much more complex situation because there are a number of players in it. And in a number of cases where there were jury findings under state public nuisance laws against manufacturers, those were subsequently thrown out because judges on appeal decided, well, wait a minute, this doesn't really meet the test of our public nuisance law. So it remains to be seen whether the particular wording of the laws in Ohio will stand on appeal. How does the money get distributed? Well, that's a great question. Uh, It is probably, hopefully, going to go into uh, drug treatment, drug uh, abatement. I mean, you know, the the dilemma, and you know, there you know, the companies make this argument. Both the manufacturers and the uh, pharmacies make make an argument, and it's partly true, which is, uh, you know, at this juncture, mo- you know, the the majority of over- overdose deaths don't involve legally produced opioids. They involve opioids that are produced in laboratories. These very toxic very destructive uh, counterfeit forms of fentanyl, uh, which now account for the the greatest growth in opioid deaths. So the question becomes, you know, if we are going to reduce these deaths and reduce addiction, it's basically a battle that's got to be fought on a lot of fronts. There's got to be reduced prescribing of these drugs, more intelligent dispensing of these drugs, but also... Uh, either stepped up law enforcement interdiction uh, of illegal opioids on the street or, you know, ultimately, you know, what's the goal here? Is the goal to save lives? And if this goal is to save lives, uh, we may have to think about scenarios where addicts can get drugs uh, in legal settings so they don't go out and kill themselves, getting them in illegal settings. So can you talk about these other cases in other states? I mean, a federal judge ruled that Walgreens can be held responsible for contributing to San Francisco's opioid crisis, for over-dispensing highly addictive drugs for years without proper 
oversight and failing to identify and report suspicious orders, um, as required by law. Um, and you have, in May, um, Wal um, Walgreens reaching a $683 million settlement with the state of Florida in a lawsuit accusing the company of improperly dispensing millions of painkillers that contributed to the opioid crisis. Is this going to go state by state? Yes, indeed, it will. And, and, you know, it's going to be basically modeled on not only state by state, but locality by locality. I mean, in many cases, these uh, county level or even state level actions have been consolidated together in courts. But there are also individual actions that have been brought by states that have been brought by counties against, uh, in this case, let's say the pharmacies. And so, yeah, it's going to be a fire that they're fighting on any number of fronts that's going to pop up. As I mentioned earlier, it's all kind of going to be determined, not so much by their actions. You know, it's like sort of hard for them to <laughs> defend their actions when, you know, there are the, all these photographs that exist of people lined up outside pharmacies to fill prescriptions or there are these very damaging internal emails uh, within the pharmacies that have come out where, you know, executives or sales reps are licking their chops over, you know, the, the thousands or tens of thousands of pain pills that are being prescribed in an area. Um, it's very much going to be a function of the particular wording of these local laws and, and the determination by these companies about whether the wording of the kind of public nuisance statute in an area, uh, they can get through that or it's too risky and they're going to settle before the case goes to court. Very quickly, Barry, a fictional adaptation of your book, Painkiller, is going to be adapted by Netflix, coming out next year, starring Uzo Duba and Matthew Broderick. You're a consultant. What do you hope will be gained by this? You know, I think this is a story that, uh, you know, it's one I'm very passionate about because I you know, wrote about it first 20 years ago. Um, the most important, you know, one of the most important things that I think hopefully this story kind of brings to light is, you know, how our fate uh, as a society, how, how our course as a society can be affected by a few people and, and how those few people may, in fact, somewhere in their heads, uh, think that they're doing good. But their their actions and and the inactions of others, particularly others within our own government, can have this extraordinarily you know extraordinary ripple effect. I mean, when you think about the development of OxyContin, you know this was originally brought out as you know something that was supposed to be a miracle drug, something that was supposed to deal with severe pain and and treat this condition that doctors were struggling to deal with. And what it helped trigger was, you know, the the biggest public health crisis of the 21st century, one that we're talking about today because the, the, the ripple effects of it just keep going on and on and on. And I think it's important for us to understand the roots of what we're seeing today and how it unfolded. And it's my great hope that, that the show 
which really does have you know terrific actors, writers, a direct wonderful director involved with it, kind of bring that all to life. Barry Marawana, thank you for being with us. Uh, award-winning journalist, author of Painkiller, An Empire of Deceit and the Origin of America's Opioid Epidemic, was a New York Times reporter you, for years, won the Pulitzer. Thank you so much. Next up, uh, we go to Florida. Yes, Tuesday is a primary there, and we're going to look at the 20 arrests that took place last week, overwhelmingly of people who were formerly incarcerated. Why? Because they mistakenly thought they were eligible to vote? Stay with us. We must By Hatchet. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to Florida, where the newly formed Office of Election Crimes and Security has made its first arrests of people it accuses of committing voter fraud tied to the 2020 election. The arrests come just as voters are set to go to the polls Tuesday in the state's primary. The office was a pet project of Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, who announced the arrest Thursday. The state of Florida uh, has charged and is in the process of arresting 20 individuals across the state for voter fraud. Many of those arrested were people who were formerly incarcerated. The state said they did not have their voting rights properly restored or were ineligible due to their convictions. For more, we go to Orlando, Florida, to speak with Desmond Mead, president of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, which works with returning citizens on restoring their voting rights. They're helping some first-time voters um, hitting the polls for the primary. He's also chairman of the Floridians for a Fair Democracy, spearheaded Amendment 4, which reenfranchised more than 1.4 million Floridians. But then Republican lawmakers overturned that. His latest book is titled Let My People Vote, My Battle to Restore the Civil Rights of Returning Citizens. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Desmond, if you could start off by explaining what is going on. Who were these people arrested? What message was being sent? And go back to when you really spearheaded this movement that got overwhelmingly approved in Florida, that returning citizens, as you say, formerly incarcerated people, can be able to vote again. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on again, uh, Amy. It's always a pleasure uh, to speak with you. 
You know, when I, when I look at this situation, what I see more than anything is that we're in a dangerous times right now. And um, I do believe that we're at a moment uh, where we may have to just shift some of our dialogue, right, and engage in a more holistic and a deeper conversation about what democracy really means to us, right? What we're seeing here with these individuals who were arrested was the state actually crossing uh, a line um, a very important line when you talk about democracy and when you talk about criminal justice reform. These individuals arrested was, at, in some way or another, given assurances by the state that they were, in fact, uh, able to vote, able to register to vote. The onus is on the state to determine whether or not an individual uh, is eligible or not. And when these individuals actually reached out to the state, or in some cases, the state reached out to them to encourage them to register the vote, once they did that and they were able to participate in an election, guess what? Now they're getting arrested. And it's, it's very disheartening. You know, we're talking about, just like in Amendment 4, you know, we, we led this effort to enfranchise people from all walks of life and all political persuasions, right? We fought just as hard for the person who wanted to vote for Donald Trump as the one who wished he could have voted for President Barack Obama. In these arrests, we're seeing Republicans, we're seeing Democrats, we're seeing NPAs uh, that are now being dragged from their homes in handcuffs because all they ever wanted to do was participate in democracy. So I want to just be very clear for people. You spearheaded Amendment 4, um, this historic ballot initiative that restored the right to vote to most state residents with felony convictions. Um, until then, Florida had been one of only four states—the others were Iowa, Kentucky, and Virginia—where people uh, who had committed felonies needed to petition the governor to have their voting rights restored, a grim 19th-century legacy um, of, uh, uh, really, ultimately, slavery, of um, 19th-century laws that passed after the 15th Amendment granted African-American men the right to vote. But the Republican-dominated legislature over turned that and said that um, people, like you yourself, Desmond Mead, had to repay every penny of what was owed, explain what that was, and how this leaves—how do people even know what they owe? Yeah, and that's something that we've been talking about for quite some time uh, after the passage of Amendment 4. Uh, it was a major subject in a lawsuit that followed the, the uh, enactment of the legislation. Uh, the fact that the state does not have a centralized database, right, to be able to ascertain exactly how much a person may owe or give someone assurances that, listen, you owe so much amount of money, and if you pay that, you're good to go. And what do you right? owe it for? What well, for outstanding fines and fees such as uh, maybe court costs, uh, restitution, and all, all various types of fees uh, that the Florida legislature have allowed the courts to use to collect revenue to keep the doors open. But, Amy, I think that this really speaks to a deeper issue. And the deeper issue is, at the end of the day, if a citizen cannot rely on the state to determine their eligibility, if the, a citizen cannot rely on the state to determine how much they owe, then that citizen should not be held 
held criminally liable, that that citizens should not be drugged from their homes in the middle of the night, right, in handcuffs in the middle of election. And it's very uh, concerning, not just to uh, returning citizens, but over the last several days, I've been receiving calls even from conservatives uh, that are concerned about even the timing of this. You know, if there are people out there who are concerned about the raid on Mar-a-Lago two years from a presidential election, then they should definitely be appalled at what is happening in the middle of an election uh, here in Florida. So how—why did they think they could vote? If you could explain that, what role did the state play, as you said? They played a very important role. Let's be clear. The burden is on the state to determine whether or not an individual is eligible to register to vote. If I believe that I am eligible to vote, I would go to the supervisor of elections and I would fill out a voter registration form. The supervisor of elections would then take that form and send it to the secretary of state where they conduct whatever investigations they need to conduct. They run it through whatever systems they need to run it through and then make a determination as to whether or not I'm eligible to vote. In the case of Alachua County, you had an individual who was approached by a supervisor of elections office and said, hey, write your name on a piece of paper. We're going to check to see if you're eligible to vote. And if you are, we will send you a pamphlet, and then you can go and register to vote. Well, guess what? This individual days later received a pamphlet from the supervisor of elections office saying that that person can vote and that person registered to vote. At the end of the day, it is the, the burden is on the state. We go to the state and we fill out an application, and the state need to make those determinations prior prior to issuing a voter identification card. In the end, do you you think these arrests are just going to be thrown out? But what matters is the message that's sent for tomorrow's, for Tuesday's primary, making people, perhaps over a million people, terrified to dare to go to the polls, because what if they're wrong? What if they somehow don't have the right to vote? Amy, this is unprecedented. And, and what I'm concerned about is it's a message that's not only f- for Florida, but for this country. It's a message that is, is, is really uh, compelling us to have this conversation, right? And I'm talking about a conversation on both sides of the aisle. This is a time where we can't be throwing individuals back and forth and really look at that deeper question. Is this is how we want our democracy to be? Is where in the middle of an election, American citizens are being drugged from their home in handcuffs? Right. This is totally unacceptable. Right. And this is happening to both Republicans. It's happening to Democrats. It's happening to people that are registering the MPA. And so the timing couldn't be worse than what it is right now. And if it can happen in Florida, it can happen anywhere in this country. And every citizen, no matter what their political persuasion, need to be very concerned. There's also a criminal justice element here, right? Removing someone from the roster requires the lowest burden of proof, right? And that is a preponderance of the evidence. But when you start talking about taking a citizen's liberty, I mean, that's the worst thing that you can do to an individual is to take their liberty, The burden of proof, the standard of proof is at its highest, and that is beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. And a critical element to these charges is that a person knowingly and willfully registered to vote and voted. Right. In all of these cases, these individuals relied on the state 
to determine their eligibility. Therefore, there is no uh, uh, um, willingness or, or, or knowingly element that's present. But yet these individuals are drugged from their homes. Most of these individuals were interviewed by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and were not even aware that they were the subject of a criminal investigation. And here's the kicker, Amy. This list that the Florida Department of Law Enforcement is relying on was given to them back in July of 2021. And so if the state was giving a list of people who may not, may not have been eligible to vote or to register to vote over a year ago, why would they wait until the middle of a primary to start making arrests? Desmond Mead, we want to thank you for being with us. President of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, congratulations on your 10th anniversary, and chair of Floridians for a Fair Democracy. This is Democracy Now! We're staying in Florida now to look at how a federal judge Thursday blocked key portions of Florida's new law called the Stop Woke Act that restricts race-based conversation and analysis in workplaces and schools. The law had major backing from Republican Governor Ron DeSantis and has been challenged by multiple groups, including business owners, students, educators, and the American Civil Liberties Union. On Thursday, U.S. District Court Judge Mark Walker issued a preliminary injunction to block what's called the private employer provisions in the law, saying it violates free speech protections and is— too vague. Judge Walker wrote, quote, recently, Florida seemed like a First Amendment upside down. Normally, the First Amendment bars the state from burdening speech, while private actors may burden speech freely. But in Florida, the First Amendment apparently bars private actors from burdening speech, while the state may burden speech freely. This comes as DeSantis took his culture war on the road this weekend to stump for Trump-backed candidates in Pennsylvania and Ohio amidst growing speculation that DeSantis may run for president in 2024. We must fight the woke in our schools. We must fight the woke in our businesses. We must fight the woke in government agencies. We can never, ever surrender to woke ideology. And I'll tell you this, the state of Florida is where woke goes to die. Where woke goes to die. For more, we're joined in Tallahassee, Florida, by Diane Roberts, journalist and professor of English at Florida State University. She wrote about the Florida governor in her new Washington Post op-ed headline, DeSantis aims to scare academics. Unfortunately, it's working. In it, she writes, DeSantis likes to call Florida the freest state in these United States. University faculty wonder if that freedom extends to the mind. Many, perhaps most of us, will continue to teach the way we always have, raising difficult questions and encouraging debate. But junior faculty, not protected by tenure, may think they must censor themselves in the classroom. That'll be a shame. Education demands we search for truth, even painful truth. I'll continue assigning books by Herman Melville and ta Coates, Alice Walker and Alison Bechtel, Claudia Rankin and Richard Wright, writers who confront America's past sins to help new generations shape America's future. That's my job. I might even use the words critical and race in the same sentence. Those are the words of Professor Diane Roberts. Welcome to Democracy Now! Um, talk about the significance um, of this, where woke goes to die. Well, I'm not sure it means anything, really. I think it is a way for Ron DeSantis to whip up his base, 
who seems rather perversely the base, I mean, as well as DeSantis, to have decided that uh, if a professor or indeed a teacher in a primary or secondary school even talks about certain things, uh, it somehow poisons the mind of youth. So if we talk about, uh, I don't know, socialism, they'll all become socialists. If we mention the word gay, they'll turn gay. Um, he knows better. He knows that's not how it works. He had a very nice education himself at Yale and Harvard. And yet he seems to have come out of those, you know, liberal bastions of um, woke uh, with his conservatism unscathed. So I think a lot of it is theater, but it's had a chilling effect, exactly as Desmond Mead in your last segment said. Uh, it scares people, and scared people uh, don't do what they would normally do, whether that's either try to vote or teach. And um, uh, it is a very nasty uh, attack on higher education, and a lot of people will self-censor. And I think that was the idea all along. So you begin classes today, Professor Roberts. The semester begins today. Um, can you talk about how particularly this bears on everything from the teaching of critical race theory to L discussions about LGBTQ rights? Well, um, I, again, I think it'll have a chilling effect, um, but a lot of us, at least my, my colleagues, uh, don't intend to change a thing. Uh, we intend to answer questions when we get them. We intend to teach writers who might uh, maybe suggest questions about uh, LGBT, excuse me, LGBTQ rights, um, like James Baldwin or whomever. Uh, we are in the business of opening minds, not closing them. And students have a lot of questions. You know, our students aren't idiots, nor are they sponges. They don't just soak up whatever the professor says. Uh, they challenge. Uh, I'm delighted they challenge. I encourage them to challenge. I'm not trying to te teach them what to think. I'm trying to teach them how to think, to think to evaluate, to question everything. And you know, I have conservative students. I have left-wing students. I have everything in between. Um, we seem to muddle along quite happily uh, without all of this, this threatening nonsense that is coming out of the governor's office. But this is DeSantis's style. Uh, he's a dictator wannabe, as best any of us can tell. Role model seems to be Viktor Orban. The Hungarian leader who was invited to speak at CPAC and did uh, just last week. Um, finally, the fact that Ron DeSantis is taking his message uh, looks like he's uh, beginning a presidential campaign to Ohio oh. and other states. Of course he is. He's been running for president since the minute he got elected governor, because we've noticed that so much of his campaign— Money comes from out of state. Uh, he has been you know, pushing all the right buttons. You know, teachers are the enemy. Uh, 
doctors are sometimes the enemy. You know, he's got, we've got a surgeon general who doesn't think much of vaccines, any kind of vaccines, apparently. Um, and that's not going to go well. Uh, we have all of these people in universities who are leaving or thinking of leaving. I mean, my own university t- lost uh, some very prominent law professors. Uh, obviously, faculty leave for all kinds of reasons, but this may have had something to do with it. Uh, the University of Florida is losing people. And the University of Florida has unfortunately uh, been kind of the poster child for how frightening DeSantis can be. Their board of trustees is a bunch of Republican donors. And the president at the University of Florida made a slideshow sent to all of the faculty uh, about being careful what they say, because if things go wrong and the governor notices, uh, they could lose $100 million in funding. Well, I want to thank you very much for being with us, um, Diane Roberts, journalist and professor of English at Florida State University. We'll link to your Washington Post op-ed headlined, DeSantis aims to scare academics. Unfortunately, it's working. Also, the latest news out of Florida, a suspended Florida prosecutor uh, suspended by Governor Ron DeSantis over his views on abortion. Um, is fighting to get his job back. Well, next up, we're going to speak with a member of the Alphabet Workers Union in Denver. We're demanding Google protect the location and browser history of people searching for information on abortion and more. Stay with us. Synthetic World by Swamp Dog. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. More than 650 Google workers have signed a petition demanding the mega-tech company protect the location and browser history of people searching for content and information on abortion from law enforcement agencies. The petition is led by the Alphabet Workers Union, which is also asking Google to extend its abortion benefits, including relocation support for workers hoping to move to states where abortion isn't criminalized and travel and health care costs for any out-of-state abortion procedures to contractors— to stop donating money to politicians who supported the overturning of Roe v. Wade through Google Political Action Committee, NetPAC, and to block advertisements that misleadingly direct users to anti-abortion so-called pregnancy crisis centers. This comes amidst mounting concerns. Police and states with abortion bans will use Google data to target and prosecute people seeking abortion. Just earlier this month in Nebraska, a mother and her teenage daughter were 
charged with felonies after the mother helped her daughter obtain uh, a medication abortion. Authorities built their case in part on private Facebook messages between the mother and daughter, which were obtained through a warrant. For more, we go to Denver, Colorado. We're joined by Alejandra Beatty, the Southwest chapter lead with Alphabet Workers Union, Alejandra's technical program manager for Alphabet's healthcare subsidiary, Verily. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Alejandra. Can you talk about what your demands are? Start off with this case that took place, with the um, warrant that got the information, the conversation on Facebook between the mother and daughter, and how this has affected so many people. Important uh, uh, perspective to have. Uh, we are now in a situation where you, the information that you consider private uh, the information data about yourself, and unfortunately, the criminalization of pregnancy now very much means that systems like Google that know everything about you can now be used against you. And that is a—it's it's, it's a crazy world to think that we are in that space, um, but it is where we are at now. So part of our petition demands are that we address this immediately, and we saw, saw some— addressing of these issues. We already saw MAPS make a commitment to wipe out data should you visit a clinic. But there's just so much more that has to be addressed that we we know that users expect privacy and expect their information to be secure, and we have to meet that need for them. So talk about the kind of information that Google has. For example, if you do a search on a medication abortion or you're in a state uh, like Texas and you have to go to another state, so you start searching for where abortion is legal. Um, explain what Google can do with this and what you're demanding they do. Right. So, again, the systems are built on knowing everything about you. Um, it's part of how— Google essentially makes money through ads. Uh, I actually did this myself recently because I, I hadn't yet experienced this. So I searched for abortions near a local city. And sure enough, when I looked at the results for them, I found clinics, things that call themselves clinics, but they weren't actually clinics. They provided absolutely no medical services around abortion. Um, and in fact, an ad even came up for one of them. Now, in this world where millions of people are now impacted and cannot find providers and clinics near, near them and have to travel out of state, the amount of disinformation that this provides is phenomenal to think about the impact that this has to people who are just looking for health care uh, and that the information that we have, basically, we know a lot about what you in particular do. So this is part of what our demands are, is to work more on how do we protect uh, user data. And in the case of searching for essentially fake clinics, uh, they're abusing the system. They are abusing a system that is meant to help provide information about websites equitably, make these accessible. Uh, but we believe that they're violating policy by trying to pretend that they are something that they are not. And we have seen some groups in Google attempt to start addressing these issues, but we really want to hone in on it's been two months. We need a solid response to this. 
This is a healthcare crisis that Google needs to figure out what can we do to provide the right kind of information to people when they need it. And now at this point, figure out how do we how do we obfuscate, encrypt, and hide that information about you because you expect privacy. And if we don't provide that kind of privacy, people will stop to use our systems. Um, so from that perspective as well, we need to address these issues. And we very much want to see the company treat it just as much as they did with the COVID response, where they said, everybody, let's figure this out. Um, and that's the kind of response that we want to see. We want to see a comprehensive program that addresses these problems. Can you talk about the more considerable impact on LGBTQ rights, where gender-affirming care is now being attacked and criminalized in some states? Exactly, right? This is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, there's more to come. Uh, we are currently a very open system, um, in general, with all information, and to see people trying to say that we also need to hide information about abortion. It's just healthcare, um, And we need to make sure that people are getting the right health care information and not being misled. Uh, it's absolutely imperative that w when that comes to gender affirming care as well, uh, we also want to see that extended to our contracting uh, teammates who make up, we think, almost half of the Google employee population. And they are not being extended the same coverage and same benefits. And many of them live in the very states that are actually impacted. So we think that from a mutual aid perspective, this must be addressed right away. And yet, here we are two months into this, and they haven't done anything yet. So you sent your petition to Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Alphabet, um, which is the uh, corporation uh, that—the uh, umbrella corporation for Google and other top execs. Has there been any response no, unfortunately, there hasn't been. Um, I checked my spam filters even. Um, and I think that I know that our demands are strong, um, but a lot of this is also about the systemic issues that we need to see addressed. That's the money and politics part of our, our petition. Uh, we're going to keep organizing and we're going to keep pulling in more coworkers. We're amplifying a lot of voices that uh, we've heard already of people very concerned about not only our employees, the users of our system, and again, how do we even get here and how do we address these systemic issues? Can you explain, Alejandra, what keyword subpoenas are? Right. So they've been actually used for a long time. Uh, and the whole idea is that... Uh, Basically, because Google knows a lot about what users do on our system, down to they usually know that you made that search, uh, it is possible for law enforcement to use that information to find what people do. In fact, there's a uh, interesting case actually here in Denver where they were able to use a keyword search for somebody looking up a particular address to figure out who went to a house. Um, in this case, what we are very likely to see is requests for keyword searches of, I'm searching for an abortion. Uh, maybe also providing that information in, uh, in other search results. That we believe that that's very likely going to start to happen more and more as people 
look to criminalize pregnancy and not just be searching for providers, but actually searching for those who are just seeking it out. Finally, um, what will be uh, the response? I mean, more than 650 of you of Alphabet workers have signed this petition if you don't get a response. Well, we've been organizing for more than a year and a half, amplifying employee voices. We're going to continue to work on that. We're starting to collaborate with other unions because we believe this needs to be a national response. This is absolutely a labor issue. It's an impact to our health care rights, and we must protect those. And we're going to continue to bring more people on to figure out what, are we, what do we do about this? How can we... Um, Listen to the employees who know a lot about these systems, who know where the information is and what's really the right way to fix these problems. Um, And I will put out a call to all fellow employees. Join us. This is the time. This is when we need you. Don't wait. On that note, Alejandra Beatty, I want to thank you for being with us. Southwest Chapter Lead with the Alphabet Workers Union, speaking to us from Denver. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.